I was okay with dying. I just didn't know what to do if I stayed alive. That's Michael Brody Waite, recovering drug addict, TEDx speaker, and three-time CEO. Leaders are scared that if they admit that they don't have their stuff together, if they're not perfect, that people are going to disrespect them. But actually what's worthy of disrespect is when you don't lead yourself and own your weakness, aggressively share it, and then actually scale yourself. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, I sat down with Michael to discuss why he believes great leaders live like drug addicts, the self-imposed masks we wear that hold us back, and how to unlock the incredible competitive advantage of rigorous authenticity. As a leader, if you truly want to be authentic, that means that you have to share the things that scare you to death. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Michael Brody Wade is many things. A renowned speaker whose TED Talk's been viewed over a million times, three-time CEO, and a recovering drug addict. In fact, his main argument is that great leaders live like drug addicts. I wanted to know what he means by this and how he deals with the taboo around speaking openly about addiction. Anytime you call great leaders drug addicts, uh, you're going to get a taboo response. I think the thing is that when people think of drug addicts, they typically think of people that are shameful to be, disappointments, not very effective at leading themselves. And when you think of great leaders, you think of almost the exact opposite. So when you say great leaders are like drug addicts, people are like, what the heck do you mean? And usually I mean two different things. The first one is when I look at addicts in active addiction, they're doing everything they can to control perception and the pursuit of the next high. When I look at quote unquote great leaders in our past, I see people that are doing the exact same thing. They're controlling perception. It's just switch out the drug for success. And so they're not willing to show their true selves. And when I look at truly great leaders that are emerging in today and in the future, I see people that are practicing rigorous authenticity. And that is what recovering drug addicts learn how to do. And that is how we end up with a title that makes people go, what the heck are you talking about? So looking back to young Michael Brody Wade, I mean, you've had basically indisputably, probably not the easiest upbringing, not the easiest childhood. If you could kind of speak to that, just kind of what the early years were that, that led to that addiction. So my first experience with addiction is one that I don't remember. And it's my dad uh, was an alcoholic. And when he came home from the bar, when I was about six or seven months old, came home from the bar, at like 2am, picked me up out of my crib and then dropped me. And he looked himself in the mirror and he said, I can be a father or I can be a drunk, but I can't be both. And he was one of the few people that could white knuckle, stop drinking. And he stopped then and came out in all these other forms. But so when I was in high school, my parents did the stupidest thing and they sat me down and they said, okay, so here's the deal, Michael, no matter what, don't use drugs or alcohol because you have addiction in your genes. Well, newsflash, if you're worried that someone is an addict, don't tell them not to do something because addicts will do whatever you tell us not to do. And so I started using drugs and alcohol when I went to college. And for me, I started to really, really struggle with life on life's terms. I was not comfortable in my own skin. I didn't know how to deal with the basics. 
And so I started reaching for the booze, reaching for the drugs. And then I saw this Lifetime movie, my freshman year of college, about this guy that was a drunk. And I remember thinking, I don't know how to do this thing called life, but I could probably figure out how to be that. And that's when I really started using alcohol and drugs as a way to completely escape life and life's terms. And that started uh, leading to all the addiction. Now, this got pretty bad, right? Because it's, it, it was bad, then worse, and, and so on, from drug addiction to homelessness. What was like that final pivotal moment where you decided to turn things around? So there was this one moment when I was alone with my drugs and with alcohol, and I had been trying to get high, quote unquote, enough, and I kept not getting high enough. And so one night I decided that I was going to use more than I had ever used before, and I accepted that I would probably die or OD in some way, but I would be quote unquote high enough. And so for 45 minutes straight, I just kept ingesting like crazy. And I finally felt a high that was quote unquote enough. I didn't die, but then five minutes later, I wanted more. And I was just like demoralized. I mean, I had gotten to a place where I'd been kicked out of college. I've been kicked out of my house. I've been kicked out of my job. I've been kicked out of my car had been like taken from me. I was throwing up blood and I just wanted to get high enough. And so I was homeless, penniless. I couldn't even get high enough. I just, I wanted to die. And, and so I remember my dad took me to, he would take me to breakfast every couple of weeks and he would say, he just wanted to buy me a meal, but I knew it's because he wanted to see that his son was still alive. And he would always offer to send me a treatment. And then finally, um, the only thing keeping me from actually living on the street was my buddy's couch. And I was completely overstaying my, my welcome. Like he would go to work and I would steal his booze, steal his drugs, steal his food, invite strangers over, wreck his house. And um, when I came back and I told him that my dad offered to send me a treatment, he started really encouraging me to do that. I would love to say it's because he was worried about my health. I think it was more he was worried about what a terrible house guest I'd been. But I finally said, okay, well, I'm going to get kicked out of here and I don't want to live on the street. So I'll take treatment. And that's, I did it not because. I was okay with dying. I just didn't know what to do if I stayed alive. And so I wanted to try to, you know, addicts are doing everything they can to numb pain. And so I didn't want to live on the street. And so I took treatment just as an alternative to being somebody who lived on the street. And it, it's interesting because when you fast forward through all this, you go from drug addiction and homelessness to leading one of the fastest growing private companies in America, like the top 500. You guys are growing like crazy, you know, 20,000% revenue growth and so on. But it's, the interesting to me is kind of that space in between, right? Because you check into rehab, you enter recovery, but that key transformation, if you could speak to that. So one of the things that anybody that has an addict in their life knows is you can tell an addict to stop doing what they're doing until you are blue in the face and they won't stop. The only way someone achieves recovery is when you tell them what to start instead. And so September 1st, 2002, I woke up at the Betty Ford Center in Rancho Mirage, California, a rehab facility. And that was my first day clean. And one of the things that they did was they equipped me with what I needed to start. They equipped me with a 12-step program that I had to execute in order to not die, in order to change my life. And so when I left treatment, I went out into the world and my first experience trying to figure out how to be a clean addict using these steps was when I was at a halfway house and I needed to get a job within five days. I've left the rehab facility. I moved into a halfway house. They tell me you have five business days to get a job. We're going to kick you out. That's how they separate people that are serious or not. And so what this ended up creating was my first moment where my addiction and my recovery 
had to reconcile with my professional life in the real world. And it culminated into a, a situation where I applied for jobs everywhere. I got like no calls. I got a call from one place called Sam Goody. For those of you that are listening, that's if you're older than me, it's a record store. If you're my age, it's a CD store. And if you're younger than me, you're like, what the fuck is Sam Goody? I just get my music through Spotify. I don't know what it's like to actually go into a store to get music. And so they called me and I knew that I was going to have to lie because I had a, like a three or four year gap on my resume. And I called my sponsor and I said, what do I do? And he said, you practice the principles of recovery. So the three principles that I was taught were to practice rigorous authenticity, be real at all times, surrender the outcome, which is really hard to do. And in this case, I was terrified of what would happen in the job interview and do uncomfortable work, which led to me being in the manager's office, telling him that I was a recovering addict, even though I knew that I, that meant I wouldn't get the job. And even if you're not an addict, nobody wants to tell somebody in a job interview the worst thing about them. And he gave me the job. And that was like the first time that I detest this new way of life and it didn't mess me up. Like I was okay. And so then if you look at the rest of my career, I started to realize that not only did me practicing the principles that I learned in recovery and sharing that I'm an addict not hurt me, I then went on to work in corporate America where I learned that they created a competitive advantage. And so I took that competitive advantage and I founded my own company and then I created an entire culture and organization of people that were acting essentially like addicts in recovery. And we obliterated our competition, even though they were better funded and had better patents and all that kind of stuff. So when you talk about these principles, I'm curious, what was driving you at the time? I mean, what was the reason you, you bought into this that you ultimately did want to improve and grow? What was there like a why or kind of a reason behind all this? When I was in rehab, it's a really powerful moment when you can see somebody that's completely different than you in all phases. And then you hear your story come out of their mouth. And when you're in rehab and you're surrounded by other addicts, you start to hear your story reflected back to you and you realize like, I'm fighting for my life. And I remember we got into a circle in rehab and this was a really sobering pun intended, uh, a very sobering moment. And they said, we got into the circle and they said, look to the person on your left and look to the person on your right. A year from now, only one person in the circle is probably going to still be clean. And so just remember, you're looking at all these people and they're looking at you. And so most of the people are going to relapse here. And so I knew that if I didn't stay clean, I was going to die. I was already throwing up blood. My liver enzymes were through the roof. I couldn't provide for myself. I was going to be living on the street. So for me, the reason I bought into these principles was the same reason that every addict gets clean. I had felt enough pain and I felt enough fear that I was willing to do something that felt uncomfortable that I'd never done before that was completely counterintuitive. And it changed my life. Although funny side note, years later, you would see me as a trainer at a Fortune 50 company. And I would use that same look to the people on your left, look to the people on your right, except I wouldn't say that you're going to die. I'd say if you don't do the things we're telling you to do, you won't be able to stay here. And someone took me aside and they're like, Mike, perhaps you're a little too intense with the trainees. Okay, this isn't about life or death. And I'm like, yes, it is. It is about life or death. But yeah, so for me, I was just desperate, man. And as you mentioned, these three principles, like practicing rigorous authenticity, surrendering the outcome and doing uncomfortable work. I know you mentioned that in the business world that these actually became a competitive advantage. How did each one like, how were you able to leverage that as a competitive advantage? Leaders are trained to do what I call wearing a mask. Now we're in the pandemic. I don't mean physical mask. The idea that you have to hide your weaknesses, hide your insecurities, hide your fears, your mistakes, all, this, all that kind of stuff. 
And so what that leads to is people doing four different things in the workplace that literally cost every individual team and organization 500 hours a year. And so there are these four masks that I've been able to identify after assessing over 1,500 leaders. So the first thing is they say yes when they could say no. Okay, so they put that mask on and they say yes when being true to them would be to say no. So they're not practicing rigorous authenticity. And so if we use the three principles just on that one real quick on say yes when you could say no, a lot of times what are we saying yes to? We're saying yes to meetings, projects, opportunities, requests, whatever. And so the reason that we're doing that, the reason that we're doing something that we don't want to do that we think isn't good for us is because we haven't surrendered the outcome. So learning how to surrender the outcome allows you to have the freedom to let go of those masks. And then when you actually say no, you're doing really uncomfortable work and people don't know how to do uncomfortable work. They know how to do smart work or hard work. Uncomfortable work is completely different. How many times have you seen someone doing eight hours of hard work, avoiding five or 10 minutes of uncomfortable work? It happens all the time. Practical example would be saying no to a customer, right? Customer wants X, you're scared you're going to lose them, but you have to practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work. So these three principles allow you to take these masks off at work and reclaim 500 hours a year. And so the first one was say yes when you could say no. The second one is hiding a weakness. The third one is avoiding difficult conversations. And the fourth one is holding back your unique perspective. And together, these four masks hold back everyone. And the three principles that I learned as a recovering addict were all about learning how to take masks off. And that's why recovering addicts are the best talent in my opinion, for leadership. Michael states that there are four masks that are holding back every individual, team, and organization. One of these masks is hiding a weakness. I wondered, what does this mask look like in action, and how does it hold you back as a leader? Everybody can relate to this story. So I am one of the youngest uh, managers in my department ever at a Fortune 50 company. I feel like an imposter. I feel like I shouldn't be there. And I learned that I need to create a pivot table in Microsoft Excel, what everybody loves. There's like a collective groan out in the world for everybody that's listening to this right now, Microsoft Excel. I had no idea how to do a pivot table. I was scared to admit that I didn't know how to do it. So I spent 22 hours trying to take someone else's pivot table, copy things, deconstruct things to figure out how to create it. When I could have literally spent 10 minutes just being really uncomfortable telling my manager, hey, I don't know how to create a pivot table. And so, if time is our most scarce resource inside organizations, I literally just fettered away thousands of dollars of productivity. And I was a leader and I'm doing this. And, and if, when you look inside organizations, people are hiding their weaknesses because they think that people are going to have less respect for them. But every time we're around someone that owns their weakness, we actually see a real model for leadership. Like nothing is leading yourself more than saying, I'm not good at this. So like when I started my startup, I got to a similar point where I was like, I don't know how to be a CEO. And I was so scared to tell my team. And I did the recovery thing from which I learned from addiction recovery. And I went to them and I said, I don't know how to be a CEO. Did they leave? Did they run away? No, they helped me find a mentor, which helped me find the solution, which helped me actually become worthy of leading them. And so everywhere leaders are scared that if they admit that they don't have their stuff together, if they're not perfect, that people are going to disrespect them. But actually what's worthy of disrespect is when you don't lead yourself and own your weakness, aggressively share it so you can get a solution and then actually scale yourself. Why is this such a difficult concept for people to embrace? And, and I ask this just because there's a lot of people out there that don't want to ask for help 
accept help or anything like that in their present situation is, I mean, they're miserable, right? They're, they're personally, professionally, all these different things. It's almost like the audacity to believe that you know how to get somewhere that you yourself have never been. It's puzzling. But what is? what do you think is the biggest barrier that holds people back from this? So I've actually done a lot of research on this. So in my book, I argue that everybody is addicted to masks. So what we're dealing with is mask addiction. And so every drug addict knows they shouldn't use drugs. Like you don't need to tell us that we know. So the real question is, why do we do it anyway? So in what I just shared, we know, oh, we should share our weaknesses, but why do we do it anyway? Well, we haven't diagnosed the problem. It's an addiction. It's an involuntary, irrational, self-harming response. Secondly, I was trying to really understand. So as human beings, we are scared of either physical death or social death. Those are the two things that we're scared of. And the way that we protect ourselves against both is by being part of a tribe. Okay, so work is a tribe. And so there is this uh, sociologist, Dr. Bob Trivers, that created a theory to try to understand why people end up doing things that don't make sense for them. And it's all about uh, the war for resources. So in the animal kingdom, the way that you get resources is you kill the other animal, right? But human beings are like, okay, we're going to be more slick and we're going to use our brains and our mouths. And so what human beings did was they created deception as a nonviolent way to win resources. And so what happens is in a tribe, if one person uses deception to get something that they want, the other people start looking for the telltale signs of them lying or hiding. Like we all have been burned by somebody and then we know to like look for the signs. So what Dr. Bob Trivers uh, said was what we do is in order to fit into the tribe, we lie about our weaknesses. But because people can detect our lies, what we do is we start lying to ourselves so that when we actually talk about the weakness, we actually think that it's not a weakness. We actually think it's a strength and that no one can detect the thing. So this is where you get like the friend that's like, knows they're in a bad romantic relationship, knows their significant other sucks, but they're convincing themselves that it's an amazing relationship. And you're like, man, they're just, they're blind, man. Like they're just, they're deceiving themselves. And so it's all about the theory of how do we achieve self-deception? And when we achieve self-deception, we're not even aware that we're doing it. And that's what allows us to quote unquote fit in. But it's also what keeps us from being aware of just how much it hurts us. Additionally, it seems like it's very exhausting too, right? I got tired just saying that. <laughs> like, like just explaining all that, I got tired. Yes, it is. It's absolutely exhausting. It's isolating. Um, it's demoralizing. And yet, you know what? Like we've had command and control leadership as a model for years, but that's being deconstructed as we speak. And so we are actually going to start to see where people are going to be able to tie sharing their weaknesses and coming out from behind a mask as an actual concrete business advantage where it's never really been positioned that way. It's always been kind of self-help. So I know we've talked about hiding a weakness. This is almost like the perfect segue into the, the next mask you mentioned, which is avoiding difficult conversations. I don't want to talk about that. It sounds too difficult. <laughs> avoiding difficult conversations is the number one. So like I talk about these four masks and I talk about like blood types, like it's the universal donor. It's the one that drives all the others. So we found this stat that 70% of employees are avoiding a difficult conversation with their boss, coworkers, or someone that they manage. And that's before you start talking about investors, customers, friends, family, all that kind of stuff. And for us, it, it literally is, it's how uncomfortable difficult conversations make us. And so an example of this is like a really embarrassing example, but as an entrepreneur, when I was building my company, one of the things I'd learned in corporate America was how to do a performance improvement plan. 
that's like where people avoid difficult conversations. They don't do, they don't do performance management. They wait until the review cycle to say something. So I, of course, felt really uncomfortable with my employees doing performance management. But in 2012, my mom came to work for me. She was my director of finance. Her business had gone under. I needed someone I could trust. She was amazing at what she did. She came to work for me. And within a year, our company was outgrowing her skill set. And so you want to talk about a difficult conversation. I had to put my mom on a pip. I had to literally walk into her cube and say, okay, this is a performance improvement plan, mom. And if you don't improve, I'm firing you. That's a really difficult conversation. And so most people, if you go back to the three principles, so how do you overcome that? The first one is practice rigorous authenticity. Identify what mask you're tempted to wear. In this case, I wanted to avoid a difficult conversation because I didn't want to upset my mom. I didn't want to demoralize her professionally or personally. I was scared what it would do for our relationship. So then you have to surrender the outcome. And surrendering the outcome is all about shifting your energy from what you can't control to what you can. And so in this example, I couldn't control that she wasn't performing. I couldn't control what her response would be, but I could control whether I gave her the information that was necessary for her to be successful and for us to be successful. And so then what's your uncomfortable work? It's going into a cube and telling your mom that she's on a pip. That intellectually makes sense. And I can work until two in the morning, but that's the thing that I would avoid because it's uncomfortable. That's not about smart or hard work. It's not about physical intellect. That's literally, it was just a sensation in my body that I didn't want to feel. And so everybody's doing this when it comes to difficult conversations, whether it's with a significant other, whether it's with a customer, an investor, a board member, a coworker, performance management, negotiations, we're all doing that. And what we're really trying to do is we're trying to avoid a sensation in our body. And so if we can learn how to practice rigorous authenticity, identify that we're wearing the mask of avoiding difficult conversations, then surrender the outcome. We can do more uncomfortable work. And when we have difficult conversations, we've all been a part of this. It actually makes relationships better. It makes decisions better. It, it makes us understanding better. It, we feel more connected when we get through that. Like it's crazy. All these things are so good for us, but we are so scared of them. So how did that conversation with your mom go? It, it did not go that great. She was stunned. And then I got the response that I feared, the outcome that I feared. She said, I am so angry at you right now. You know, I like, I loved it. If this was a movie, I'd love to be like, she would said, oh, the three principles, this is great. No, she was like, I'm so angry at you right now. But here's the deal. At the age of 17, she was arrested for trafficking heroin. She was a heroin addict. Today, she has 33 years clean. She was one of the people that taught me recovery. She taught me these principles. So that day was really uncomfortable. She was really pissed off. And then she went and she practiced these three principles. And the next day she said, okay, here's the deal. I'm still hurt that you put me on a pip, but I understand. I can't control that you put me on a pip. And I'm scared of what it means if I don't improve. I'm scared of the outcome, but I am going to do the uncomfortable work. And all I can do is make sure that I start seeking the training and the mentors that are necessary for scaling my skill set. Instead of getting distracted and mired in what she couldn't control, she was able to shift into what she could. And so our relationship is amazing. She helped me write the book. She's helped me build the company. She stayed, she worked through the PIP, she got through it, she helped us sell the company. It all worked out, but it was very uncomfortable. And it led me to the conclusion that you can work with family, but my experience is the more you love someone, the more likely you are not to want to deliver a difficult conversation. And so as a result, it's hard to work with family because you're more likely not to address the real things that are going on. And so by us having that conversation, we were able to be more effective as coworkers and we were able to be more effective as family. 
So it's so interesting you mentioned this one. I mean, there's the saying that like the progress you make in your life is dependent upon how many difficult conversations you're willing to have. And in a way, it almost comes back to the fact that like we know we should probably have these conversations, but where a lot of people stop, it's like the American Idol sensation when you've got like the first few weeks of American Idol, when you've got these people singing and, you know, it's kind of like everybody's laughing at them, right? Like the terrible singers. And I always watched that and I thought, you know, it's so interesting that nobody had difficult conversations with those people, right? Because had they had those conversations, they could have said, well, look, you know, you're not a great singer. That person has either has the opportunity to improve and hone their craft, or maybe they just find out that there's, there's something else that they would be better suited to. But because of an absence of those conversations, they're now on stage on a national spotlight and you got people laughing at them, right? Because they didn't have that feedback loop. So why is this so difficult for people? And I know you mentioned it's because it makes us feel uncomfortable, but is there a part of this that's almost like you're doing that person a disservice by not having this conversation? So it goes back to what I talked about with Dr. Bob Travers. It's about self-deception actually. When we're not having that difficult conversation, we tell ourselves it's for the other person's benefit. And so as a result, it sounds like the right action, but that's bullshit. It's actually for our benefit. We don't want to feel the discomfort and the risk of making that person upset. We don't want to go through them getting angry. We don't want to risk the relationship. I run a program called the Mastery Program, and we have Mastery Sponsors, and I'm like the top Mastery Sponsor. And I have somebody that I was coaching on how to live and lead mask-free. Okay, recovering addict who pipped his mom, created the mastery program, said avoiding difficult conversations is killing us. And I was avoiding a difficult conversation with the person that I was coaching. And I was under the illusion that it was for her benefit. And so then someone else pointed out to me, they're like, hey, maybe you should practice what you preach. I was like, oh, crap. Actually, this is about me. I don't want to feel the discomfort of hurting her. I don't want to feel the risk in our relationship if I say this thing. And then even if we get to the place where we have that awareness, a lot of us don't actually know how to have difficult conversations. So here's a really simple trick. It's like the simplest trick in the world. Start off the difficult conversation by talking about what you're scared of and having the difficult conversation. So instead of being like, okay, so I need to talk about this professional choice that you made. You chose this job. It doesn't seem to be a fit. Start with, I am really scared to have a difficult conversation with you because I'm scared that it'll risk our relationship but I really want to share with you something. Are you willing to listen? By dropping my mask, they then potentially are, are more able to drop theirs and hear the message. But it all starts with us getting over this illusion that we're doing this to protect someone else. It's selfish. We're doing it to protect us. And that's why we don't have them. We, we, we don't even know that. So let's talk about the fourth mask. And, and it's holding back your unique perspective. And that seems like this in itself could be a difficult conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so embarrassing. You write a book, you do a TED Talk, you do all this stuff, and you want to be like an expert. I wrote a version of my book that I had to throw away because it sucked. When I looked at the book, it was like mired in all these statistics, like that Bob Travers theory, like that was in there. All the stuff was in there because I wanted to look like an expert. And I realized that what I was doing was I was scared to share my unique perspective that I think people are battling mask addiction. And I was scared of how people would respond to that. And that takes me back to being in corporate America and having my boss's boss in the room and everybody's talking about how we're going to execute this strategy. And I want to be like, wait, maybe I'm the only one in the room, but should we even be doing this strategy? And so holding back your unique perspective is something that is really hard because we're not taught to lead, we're taught to follow. And so with the bosses, bosses in the room on social media, what are people going to say? What is my family going to think? 
we're constantly scared that if we stick out, we're not going to be part of that tribe anymore. And so we're trained to conform. And so if you take it back to my book, I actually had a unique perspective that I wanted to share. But I, as I wrote it, I got so scared that people would reject it. I softened it. And so I had to scrap the book and completely rewrite it again with just truly practicing the principles. And even today, I did a speaking engagement for your organization a couple of weeks ago, but two months ago, that speaking, how I spoke was like 30% worse because I wasn't leaning into my unique perspective. I was worried about the haters in the room. And, and so what we did was with my three principles, I made my goal for the month to collect haters and to collect people that were changed and impacted by my stuff. And I knew I was doing well collecting haters because I had a YouTube video where someone called me a sociopath. And I'm like, good, I just collected my hater. Awesome. And for me, it was like, okay, so if I'm going to share my unique perspective, I'm going to have haters. I'm going to have people that believe in it. I need to be able to step into that. But for most of us, we don't know how much we're allowing what other people think suppress our unique perspective, whether it's in professional life or whether it's just how you dress in your personal life. It doesn't matter. And it's just a really hard one. But I think it's one of the most beautiful ones to overcome because everybody's got a unique perspective that's really valuable. I imagine this is what makes change so difficult, right? Because of the feedback loops that exist. Because as you're changing, let's say it's even in a positive way, there's going to be critics while concurrently, because this is a new change, you can doubt yourself, right? So their, their criticism can feed into that doubt. How do you know when the criticism or feedback that you're getting is something that just as a result of you taking a stand for something versus it's just, let's say, a difficult conversation to you know, improve a weakness? So for that's a really great question. And for me, I learned this in recovery. So when I would have a problem, I would call and I didn't know what to do about something or I, or I got feedback that what I was doing was wrong or whatever. I would call a ton of addicts in recovery and I would ask for their opinion. And so I'd get like 20 opinions and I, I would be still really confused. I'd be like, dude, I just got 20 opinions. What do I do? And so um, someone in recovery gave me this tip. They said, Talk to the five people that you trust the most. And if two to three or four of them are saying hey, the same thing, where there's smoke, there's fire. And so to me, it's about having an intentional feedback loop that is curated. And so like when I was building my company, I had a CEO coach, I had a financial coach, and I had a, a healthcare coach, right? And I curated that decision. And so I, I intentionally, without fail, would go to them with my stuff and ask for their feedback. And it was their voice that would kind of help me overcome the masses saying what you're doing is stupid. The masses saying what, and, and the problem is that prior to social media, we had equal access to those types of voices as we did the haters. But because everybody is now a public speaker, because that's what it is now by doing social media, everybody's a public speaker. We are all subject to a tremendous amount of ridicule and we can get lost in the sea of all these voices of strangers that we don't actually respect their opinion in the first place, but we're allowing our decisions to be dictated by those opinions. So it has to be about taking a level of intentionality. And for me, it was a sponsor in recovery, uh, the equivalent of a sponsor in my professional life. Some, a few close friends were aligned in, in the principles that we live by. And then anytime I'm confused, I go to them. I go to the same five people. And it's like my little tribe, my little advisory board. And three out of five agree on something. I usually go with it. It doesn't mean I do what they tell me to do, but I, I trust their opinion more than I do. I use their opinions to filter the opinions of the masses. 
There was something you, you said there briefly that I really want to make sure that, that people heard and, and that specifically that they don't miss because you said go to the five people that you trust, but then you added a qualifier basically saying that also live by similar principles and deciding on who you trust is actually very important because who you get advice from can take you to new heights or it could be your anchor. Yeah. So I had, um, I had an advisor that was like a renowned expert in a field, but we were not aligned in the principles that we wanted to live life by. And so I got a lot of really great experience during the home for that person. But a lot of times I would essentially get led astray. You contrast that with my best friend, Toby, who is another recovering addict who has absolutely no experience being an entrepreneur. He's never worked any sort of an information job, like of any kind, he's never taken business class or anything. And oftentimes he was my better advisor because he and I were in lockstep on the spiritual principles that we want to live life by. We want to practice rigorous authenticity. We want to surrender the outcome. We want to do uncomfortable work. So like in my book, I talk about in the last chapter, the tale of two divorces where living mask free cost me a million dollars. And it was a negotiation with my ex-wife and everybody was telling me that I shouldn't yield. People that were smart, lawyers, no offense, lawyers, business entrepreneurs saying, don't do that, don't do that. But I call Toby and he and I are aligned on our spiritual principles. He knows what I'm about. He knows all my experiences and he's able to be like, you know what? Doing the next right thing always lets me sleep better. And so if you think it's the next right thing, it doesn't matter what people say. And that was so clutch and so huge. And so for me to be able to find people that have the like expertise, right? Combined with the principles, that's the key because you can find someone with expertise, but if they live by a different value system, they're going to lead. There's a lot of different ways to get to a location that you want to get to. You want to make sure that you get there in a way that matters to you. And for me, it's being as authentic as possible, practicing as much surrender as possible and not being scared of uncomfortable work. And so I needed to have people around me that knew how to do that. And we've spoken a a great deal about leadership. What, What do you believe is like the biggest mistake that a leader can make? The biggest mistake a leader can make in the world uh, where people are talking about authenticity is to practice what I call selective authenticity. And so that's like saying, hey, you know what? I struggled with something once in the past too. So I've checked the box. I'm authentic and real. But why don't you tell me what you're struggling with right now? Leaders or you have a really an entrepreneur that um, is really excited that goes, oh, I came across, you know, this TED talk by Michael and I want to live mask free. Like we should all do it. And they're not acknowledging that as a leader, if you truly want to be authentic, that means that you have to share the things that scare you to death. Simon Sinek says leaders go eat last. Authentic leaders go first. You have to be the person that sets the table. So for example, when I went to my team and I said, I don't know how to be a CEO. I didn't soften it. I didn't preface it. I said, I don't know how to be a CEO. I did that before I ever asked them if they needed help scaling in their jobs. So as a leader, I call that leading yourself. And I'm going to give you an, an, uh, a metaphor or analogy. I'm not even sure which one it is to give you an example of how to think about this. Think about being on a blind date. Okay. You're on a blind date. I'm in high school. I was not like popular. I wasn't unpopular, whatever. But let's say I'm, I'm, in, I'm on a date with the most attractive human that I've ever thought possible. She's next to me. I'm like, oh my God, how am I on this date? And she looks at me and we're we're in a movie theater and she leans in and closes her eyes. In that moment, I'm hoping that she wants me to kiss her, but I'm terrified that I'm misreading it and I'll be a complete fool if I lean in and kiss her, right? So we all look for like, what's the affirmation? 
well, I'm going to feel like an idiot if I lean in to kiss her and she was actually reaching for her purse. So you know what would make me feel safe in that situation if she looked at me and said, make no mistake about it, I want to kiss you right now. And then she leans in. That's what a leader has to do. I'm not saying that leaders should be dating their employees. That's like probably not good from an HR perspective. But you have to be that intentional, that proactive in setting the tone to make it safe. So it's not like, hey, you know, I kind of struggle with difficult conversations. What do you struggle with? It's like, hey, I just had a conversation where I completely wore the mask of avoiding difficult conversations. This is what it cost me. And I know I need to get better. If you can do that with the people that you lead, it makes it safe for them to take off the mask. And now everybody can actually focus on scaling, growing, negotiating the climate, whatever it is that you need to do, but you have to go first, you have to go deeper, and you have to set the tone. And that's something that most leaders don't do. They listen to a podcast like this and they go, okay, I'm just going to kind of do it. You got to be really committed. Michael Brody Waits' approach to leadership is all about vulnerability and honesty, something I've incorporated into my own leadership approach at Crisp. You see, we make our goals public. This forces accountability. If we were very open and clear about our goals, no matter how challenging they are, a whole bunch of people are holding us accountable to them. If we fail, we can't just sweep it under the rug because we've committed to those goals on a public level. What's Michael's take on this aspect of accountability? When you live mask-free, you are actually holding yourself accountable to leading yourself. Like, because if you show everybody what you got, like if I'd gone into the, to that, my team and every week said, I don't know how to be a CEO, after a year, they would have been gone. Like, they would have been like, screw this. But because I did that and then I share with them my pros and cons of what I did to scale, that's living out in the open held me accountable to my growth. And it also, by example, showed them how they can lead themselves. And I think that's the best thing a leader can do is we're so focused on leading others, we've forgotten how to lead ourselves. Show people how you're leading yourself. Don't go struggle privately and then share like the synopsis later. Allow people, invite people into the struggle with no filter because everybody's got a similar struggle. Whatever kind of leader you are, everybody's a human being trying to make their way in this world. They're messing up and they're like, how do I overcome my imperfections? How do I overcome my mistakes? Show them how you do it, but don't do it with the lens of trying to manipulate their perception of you. Do it genuinely. And then as you do that, you transform the level of trust that you have with that person. Now you're not building trust because, oh, I do what I say I'm gonna do. They're gonna be like, shit, that's a real human doing real work actually leading themselves. And I want to not just follow them at work. I want to follow them in life. So Michael, I'm imagining there's somebody's listening to this and saying, you know what? I think the vulnerability is great, but Michael, if I am truly, truly vulnerable, what if this backfires on me? What if, you know, I've got a persona to maintain, you know, I, the team's got to respect me. The client's got to respect me, all these different things. And if I'm truly vulnerable about my, my weaknesses, what if that backfires? So this is what I would tell that person. You're right. It will backfire. So let's just accept that. In order to live and lead mask-free, you have to be one of the first people through the door and the people through the door change the world, change their lives and change the lives of others, but they get bloodied in the process. When I was at Dell, I shared openly about being a recovering addict. I was scared it would hurt me and it did. Someone started a rumor that I relapsed trying to stop me from getting a job, a promotion. There will be risk. But the problem is that we ask ourselves, what's the risk of being vulnerable? And we don't ask ourselves enough What's the cost of not being vulnerable? Will you lose some people? Potentially, yes. Will you lose the confidence in some customers? Potentially, yes. But the other side of that equation is, is that most of us 
are thirsting for someone to be that genuine and that real and that vulnerable and that authentic in a world where there isn't a lot of authenticity. And so the people that are your customers that, are, that actually want that, they're going to double down on you. The employees are going to double down on you. And so you're actually going to, it's going to be a wash, if not net positive in terms of actual external impact. But the more important thing is on your effing deathbed, are you going to wish that you had managed everybody's perception? Or are you going to wish that you know, with your one shot in life, you had been true to yourself and live life the way you wanted without the exhaustion and the stress of hiding your true self? You're going to collect more haters or people that lose confidence. You're going to collect more advocates. But the most important thing is when you look in the mirror, do you like what you see? And I would say, and I mean, I've already said you save 500 hours a year because people waste 31 hours a month just in neat, unnecessary meetings alone. That's just like one thing that people do in terms of wearing a mask. But on your deathbed, you're not going to care about the time. You're going to care about, man, did I live a life that was true to me? So you know what? You will take a risk. You will lose some people. You will also gain people to offset that because most of us are thirsting for real leaders and real leaders show you how they lead themselves. And Michael, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? Truly great leaders take an unpopular stance and they change the course of history. I think being a game changer can be anybody that is willing to take an unpopular stance in order to change the world, both for themselves, the people they care about and everybody that comes after them. Now, we have a lot of visibility and a lot of focus on the people that end up in the history books. But what I would argue is, if you're a drug addict right now and you get clean and you change the game for yourself, and then you have a child, and the one thing that you did was model a different way to live for them and you change the game for them, even if that doesn't end up in the history book, that's amazing. So being a game changer can be on a large scale or a small scale, but it's about changing yourself in order to change the world so that you can help change one other person's life. I want to give a huge thank you to Michael Brody Wade for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was when Michael mentioned that if you truly want to be authentic as a leader, you have to share the things that scare you to death and that every time we're around someone that owns their weaknesses, we actually see a real model for leadership. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Michael Brody Waite, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be speaking to Andrew Finkelstein, managing partner of Finkelstein & Partners, renowned consumer activist and accomplished litigator. We'll be speaking about how Andrew runs not one, but four, yes, four, law firms. We'll cover everything he's learned over his decades of experience, from how to treat employees to how to source new cases, and where he believes the future of the legal industry is heading. I don't really view other law firms as my competition. My competition are all the other service organizations that my client comes in touch with. My competition is American Express, Visa, how they answer the phone, uh, when they go to Starbucks, how they're treated at Starbucks. That's what we're being measured against. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Mm -hmm.